0: Start back in our study in the book of Judges. We will probably finish Judges before the end of the year, no doubt we will finish it before the end of the year. Uh, And then we will certainly do Ruth, and then we'll definitely start Samuel before the end of the scholastic year. So, uh, Judges 13, we'll begin the Samson narrative. I'll begin reading at verse 13. This is that Old Testament nativity story. That's why we say hymn 151. So, Uh, We'll begin reading at verse 1. Again the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. Now there was a certain man from Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed now you are barren and have borne no children, for you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. And no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb. He shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So the woman came and told her husband, saying, "A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. He said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you, and we will prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must uh, offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord." Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, that when your words come to pass we may honor you? The angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it up upon the rock of the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, because we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands. Nor would he have shown us all these things. Nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahane Dan between Zorah and a Amen. Well, this is that Old Testament nativity story. Uh, it comes at a dark time in the life of Israel. They're under oppression from the Philistines for 40 years. Not only that, uh, they've been engaging in a lot of idolatry, which has led to this oppression. As we've seen in the book of Judges, just a reminder, we see the main idea is about the salvation of the Lord, but we see that in contrast with the degeneration of Israel. Uh, Daniel Block calls it the Canaanization of Israel. Remember, Israel was supposed to be separate. Israel was supposed to be different. They were not supposed to be like the nations around them. God chose them, brought them up of the land of Egypt. God entered into covenant with them, and we see that fleshed out in full in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is the foundation for all the historical books that follow. It's the foundation for all the prophets. How is it that the prophets can come and engage in lawsuit, can engage in warning? It is because of that Mosaic covenant that God had entered into with the people of Israel. Now, remember, that covenant is a covenant of works concerning life in the land. There's no saving benefit found there. It is mainly and primarily about life in the land. If Israel does what is right, they shall receive blessing. If Israel does what is wrong, they shall receive cursing. And we see throughout the book of Judges, they engage in a lot of wickedness, which then leads to their oppression. Now Judges does contrast with Joshua. Joshua is that first entrance into the land, fulfilling that promise to Abraham. But remember, the, uh, the, the, uh, the people do primarily uh, what is right, uh, still, some cracks there in the book of Joshua, but then we turn to Judges, and Joshua's gone, and everything uh, just degenerates, and everything goes downhill. Certainly, we saw that with Jephthah. We saw how, in chapter ten, we see how there's so many gods that they worship, so many gods that they go after, uh, and God then delivers them again into the Amorites uh, and to or the Ammonites, sorry, and then also the Philistines as well. And we see the tragedy of Jephthah. Uh, how he makes that rash vow. Turns out it's his only daughter who comes out to meet him, a virgin. He's got no offspring. He's got no children. Uh, That's in contrast with some of those minor judges that we see in chapter 12 who have many children. Uh, We see the tragedy with Jephthah, and certainly we see this section in Samson does start with tragedy as well with this one who is barren. But the problem I think we see in chapter 13 is the intensification of Israel's idolatry. Or perhaps we could say the neglectfulness of of God. The people clearly descend into sin all the more and we see a clear sign of that in the fact that they're comfortable in their sin. They've grown complacent. They're quite happy to be under tyranny. They're quite happy just to live their life Uh, uh, ...as part of uh, the land of the Philistines... ...part of the people of Philistia... ...rather than worshipping the one true God. They're quite happy in their sin. Now that's a good reminder and a good warning for us. We need to be watchful. The church, individuals... We need not be... We shouldn't be comfortable in our own sins. Not saying we're not supposed to do... uh, ...what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to honour God. We, We hold fast to what God has told us to. But I'm talking about being complacent in our sins... Usually when we're comfortable, that is when we are complacent. And sometimes, and most of the time, God in his goodness condescends and awakens us by his grace out of that complacency. So certainly we do see that. I know a lot of people have different views about Samson. Uh, as I've taught on Samson before, you, you know that I think he's not as bad as everybody makes him out to be. He's got his problems, he's got his issues, But the main thing to highlight in the Samson narrative is God's goodness. Samson's got his issues, but God is good. And he brings out this occasion to deliver the people out of the hand of the Philistines. And so in Judges 13, we see God condescends in the prophecy of the birth of the deliverer, Samson. Israel is not looking for God but then we see this birth narrative that comes in a hopeless time. A hopeless time where they're under tyranny, but also a hopeless time where the people of Israel are not seeking God, and yet God condescends, and he promises this one who would save his people out of the hand of the Philistines. And so we'll look at this birth narrative under two, three headings this evening. First of all, we'll see when Yahweh condescends in verses 1 through 7— Secondly, we'll see when Yahweh hears in verses 8 through 18. And the last we'll see when Yahweh appears in verses 19 through 25. So when Yahweh condescends, when Yahweh hears, and when Yahweh appears. Uh, if you were here the last two times I taught on this, you'll know those are the exact same points uh, <laughs> that I've had. Uh, So let's first look at when Yahweh condescends in verses 1 through 7. And the problem continues in verse 1. Remember, we've seen these cycles in the book of Judges. Remember, it's sod, not sword. Sin, oppression, deliverance. Not sin, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. You see, when Israel cries out in distress, it is not repenting of their sins. When they're crying out in distress, it's because they're in distress. It's because they're in pain. And we see they don't actually repent of their sins. What happens is they just continue to engage in their sins and in their wickedness. And so we typically have seen that cycle throughout the, uh, the Judges' narrative. Sod, sin, oppression, and deliverance. And so we see in verse 1. And again the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So that seems to square for the most part. They sin, the Lord hands them over, but notice there 's no crying out. notice they 've grown complacent. Notice that is the one thing that is different with this narrative is that as judges has pressed on, we see that Israel becomes more and more complacent they 're not even crying out anymore they 're quite happy to be uh, in tyranny they 're quite happy and they 've grown accustomed to their servitude. And certainly this plays out with Samson, the Judahites. The Judahites are the ones who go and say, Samson, we need to hand you over. I mean, we've already seen uh, in fighting, we've already seen some civil strife within Israel. But certainly we see it with Samson, who is the alone by himself primarily. And the Judahites come and they try uh, to talk some sense into him by saying, you need to submit uh, to the Philistines. So Israel is not in a good place. Israel is under tyranny. They're not in a good place um, uh, socially, they're not in a good place civically, and they're certainly not in a good place spiritually. And notice what Yahweh is going to do. He's going to bring salvation. And notice we see the appearing to Mrs. Manoah in verses 2 through 5. We don't know her name. We just call her Mrs. Manoah least we know her husband's name. And we see it's going to come from an unexpected place. It's going to come from Dan. That's one of the smaller tribes, the smallest tribe, one of the smallest tribes. And so we see that it's going to come from a place that is unexpected. And certainly we will see that the tribe of Dan engages in a lot of idolatry in the latter parts of Judges. But for now, God is going to bring deliverance from the Philistines from the tribe of Dan. And so we start this extended narrative with verse 2, extended birth narrative with verse 2. Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. So we know his name, we know his tribe, but then we see the problem. And his wife was barren and had no children. Again, you see the connection with Jephthah. Jephthah uh, engaged in this rash vow, and then he followed through with that vow. His daughter was fine with that. I do believe he followed through with it, so he died childless. But Mrs. Manoah is born barren. Now remember, in the uh, ancient Near Eastern world, when one is born barren, the assumption seems to be is that she is cursed. So there would have been a lot of shame uh, that Mrs. Manoah had felt. So she's, it's an unexpected place, it's a family, it's a couple with no children, and this is where salvation is going to come. Because it's going to be Yahweh who brings it about. Again, Judges, the wickedness of Israel, but also even greater than that, what outshines that is the goodness of God, his mercy, his graciousness, and his might to save his people. And so we see she is barren. She has no children. And then we see an angel comes to announce the birth, like John the Baptist and like Jesus later. That's why it's an Old Testament nativity. And so we see in verse three, the angel of the Lord Uh, uh, appeared to her, sorry, appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. He highlights the problem, and he says many times throughout this narrative, you're going to conceive and bear a son. You're going to have a child. You're going to have a son. And he's going to do something very specific. And so there is this son who's going to be born, but God gives a specific command for what she must do and what the little boy must do, although he will be a big boy. Verse 4. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. This is that Nazarite vow that we see in Numbers chapter 6. But one thing that's different for Samson is it's involuntary. What I mean by that is, and what the commentators mean by that is, it's divine commission. Before Samson is born, he is going to be set apart as a Nazarite. He's going to be set apart to God in this way. Typically, when one engages in the Nazarite vow, it was voluntary. I think Paul engages in the Nazarite vow in Acts chapter 21. Uh, That's when he was about to be arrested. He was trying to soften some of the concerns that the Jews had to be all things to all people. Uh, Still, even though he he was under the new covenant, for cultural reasons, he engaged in the Nazarite vow in Acts chapter 21. But here, for Samson, it is by divine commission. And not only that, it is permanent. When one engaged in the Nazarite vow, it was not permanent. It was a time of separation, a time of being set apart uh, for a specific time. But for Samson, it was going to be throughout his entire life. Life. And so we see, don't eat any drink or wine or similar drink. Don't eat anything unclean. And then verse 5, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Again, that's repeated. She probably needs to hear that one again. I've been barren for years. What? I'm going to conceive and bear a son. Here's this angel. And she doesn't know who it is. She, it's, it's God appearing to her in this theophanic way, but she doesn't understand what's going on uh, just yet. And God will show them that. But we see, Drink wine or similar drink, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. And then we see in verse five, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Now we read that razor part. We all know what's about to happen later on in chapter sixteen, right? When we t- talks about the hair, don't mention to the Lila your hair. Don't tell her about your hair. Just let her enjoy your flowing locks. Don't tell her to cut the hair. And so it's a bit of an ominous sort of command, isn't it? Because we know what's about to happen. No razor shall come upon his head. And he shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And notice what he's going to do. And this follows that same sort of judge's um, kind of key sort of purpose. He shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. That was the purpose of the office of judge. It was to deliver the people out of the hands of their oppressors. God raised up deliverers, different deliverers throughout this book. And Samson is one of those deliverers as well. And so he's going to deliver the people. uh, She receives this command. And we see in verse 6, she goes and speaks to uh, her husband. So the woman came and told her husband, saying... A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. But I do not ask from where he was from, and he do not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death." So she comes and she speaks to him. She comes and she announces to her husband about this man of God, this one who appeared to her like a person. We know that it's more than a man. We know that it's the angel of the Lord, God appearing to her in this way. But she did not have his basic information. She wasn't expecting God to be the one who condescended to her in this way. So she repeats the command that was given to her. She tells her husband what she must do. And I think one of the reasons it is is repeated in the narrative is because we have to remember it's not just Mrs. Manoah that we have to consider. We have to consider whom the author of Judges, of the book of Judges, is writing to. Who is he writing to? It is Israel. Now remember, there's a lot of uh, of commentators who point out how Samson in a lot of ways is like Israel. He is this one who's chosen. He is this one who's set apart. He is the one who's supposed to be different. He's the one who goes after foreign women. I mean, we see all these parallels with Israel in Samson. And one thing that Israel was supposed to be was different. They weren't supposed to be like the nations around them. In fact, the idea of not eating unclean animals was something that all of Israel was supposed to follow. But Israel didn't do that. Israel violated the covenant. Israel continued to sin against God Most High, and it was a reminder here that they were supposed to be this very thing set apart to God Most High, to be different than all the nations around them. And so he shall do this no wine, no similar drink, no anything unclean, for he shall be announced right to God from the womb to the day of his death. We see that permanent. Calling with respect to his office. He is supposed to be a Nazarite to the day of his death, and the one who will save his people, who will bring his people uh, and deliver them out of the land of the hands of the Philistines. Now I want to make one couple comments with respect to verse five. You know, that kind of helps us see the rest of the narrative, doesn't it? You know my view is Samson, again, I don't think he's as bad as everybody makes him out to be. I think it's overblown. I mean Israel was complacent. Israel's happy under the, land, under the hand of the Philistines. And so God, by way of divine calling, but also by way of providence, is going to bring an occasion for there to be conflict with the Philistines. Right now, there's no conflict. Right now, Israel's fine, but there needed to be some friction between Israel and the Philistines. And it's going to come by way of the wife of Timnah. It's going to come by way of Samson liking foreign women. God is going to use that as the occasion by which he delivers his people, by which salvation comes to the people. Even with respect to the brothel, and we'll talk about that when we get there, I think there's a military strategy that he does there in chapter 16. He doesn't stay till the end of the, night, or the, end of the morning, which the Gazites thought he would do. He leaves at midnight. Because they think he's going to be there. But we'll talk about that more when we get to verse 16. I'm just getting so excited and I'm getting ahead of myself. But we'll, we'll get there when we get to verse uh, chapter 16. And don't forget he's alone in his judgeship. He's by himself, and by himself. And we have to remember all those sorts of things. Not to psychologize Samson. But, um, you know, we've kind of... Hit him pretty hard sometimes. I remember hearing a sermon, I've used this example before, they hit him so hard about how awful he is, how terrible he is. Look at this guy. I can't believe he would do that. Not realizing that we would probably do the same thing. And then he he did 16, and he just went to 21. He stopped at verse 21, where it says um, in chapter 16, let me get there, 16, 21. Philistines took him, put out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters and became a grinder in the prison. They stopped there. He stopped there. Then verse 22. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. I mean, there's like like a symbol of hope right there and the goodness of God right there. And we just hammer the guy. Again, brethren, we're terrible, we're awful, we're vile, and God is good. But we shouldn't slam Samson as much uh, as we do. He shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, I think all of this teaches us about the grace of God. I mean, God in grace appearing. I mean, the important points. Israel is content in their sin. It's a small tribe and a nameless mother. Israel wasn't seeking God, and yet Yahweh saves them anyway. Brother, there are many times in life where I don't pray to my God, and yet he gives me good things anyway. Now, I'm not saying we don't pray to God. We pray to our God. He is our Father. We call out to him. We should have that familiarity with him where we call, on, uh, call out to him in times of need, in times of distress, thanksgiving. But God is so good that he gives us the things that we need, even if we do not ask. Mm-hmm. Dale Ralph Davis says, For if Yahweh's help were given only when we pray for it, only when we asked for it, only when we had enough sense enough to seek it, what paupers and orphans we would be. And so, brethren, even in salvation, we must remember we were not seeking God, but God sought us. And thankfully, deliverance will come from a small tribe and a nameless woman, even during the time when the people of Israel are content in their sins. So that is when Yahweh condescends... And we'll see what that means with our uh, second and third points. When Yahweh hears and when Yahweh appears. And so let's move on then to when Yahweh hears in (coughs) verses 8 through 18. And so we see God listen to Mr. Manoah. I guess I can just call him Manoah. Verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh my Lord. Please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. Hopes to see the man of God. Maybe he doesn't believe his wife. Who knows? But notice God listens. Verse 9. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel came to the woman again. I want to see this angel of the Lord, O God. And the angel goes to the woman again. The ladies do play an important role in the Samson narrative, don't they? His mom plays an important role, and the two Philistine ladies play an important role. I guess three Philistine ladies if you count uh, the harlot at Gaza. But we have the woman of Timnah, the harlot of Gaza, and Delilah. Uh, Three of them have no names, and one of them has a name. But for now, Mrs. Manoah receives uh, the word of God. And the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field, verse 9, but Manoah, her husband, (laughs) was not with her. Then the woman, verse 10, ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. The angel of God appears again. And so Manoah arose, verse 11, and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? Are you the man who... Who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah says in verse 12, Now let your words come to pass, what will be the boy's rule of life and his works. And we see really in verse 11, I mean, God just obliges. I mean, Mr. Manoah does kind of have put in his foot in his mouth a few times with these. You should have listened to his wife. What's the purpose? I, I told you, honey, what the purpose is. I told you what I'm supposed to do. And, He obliges. The angel of the Lord obliges. God obliges. He says in verse 13, So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. I I told her all that needs to be done. Uh, um, uh, But she may not eat anything, verse 14, that comes from the vine. Nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. So this has been repeated three times. Not to mention, the third time it's mentioned here in verse 14, All that I commanded her... Let her observe. God has already told her what she needs to do, and God is still good to remind her and speak to Mr. Manoah in this way. God obliges with all the questions that Mr. That Manoah has for, uh, for the angel of the Lord. But all that I commanded her, let her observe. Again, that's the key lesson for Israel, isn't it? All that I command you, observe. I mean, how many times in Deuteronomy was that repeated? All that I command you, do it. All that I say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And what do they do? They don't do that very thing. And they are thus then eventually kicked out of the land because of their wickedness and because of their vileness. All that I commanded her, let her observe. He repeats the Nazarite vow. He repeats, uh, affirms the words that were said to her. And so then Manoah says, let us Please stay. Let us feed you. Let us show some hospitality. Food for your time. Verse 15. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you, and we will prepare a young goat for you. <laughs> it's fun to read this, because we know who it is, but Manoah does not. And so he views this appearing as a man. Thinks it's just a man. Though you detain me, I will not eat, uh, I will not eat your food. You see... Does God eat food? Does God get hungry? So then we see, but if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. He doesn't realize whose presence he is in. He doesn't realize who he's standing before. And the burnt offering is vital and important for Israel to approach unto their God. There are those five sacrifices. Three of them are all about approaching unto the Lord that is, the tribute, the peace that is brought, the ascension unto God. That burnt offering is for that. And the other two, the purification and reparation, have to do with sin. How is it that a sinful people can walk and approach unto God? It has to be by way of sacrifice. And so he says here, the burnt offering you must offer to the Lord. I'm not going to eat your food, but you must offer a burnt offering unto the Lord as a form of worship, as worship unto uh, the Lord. And so, Manoah says in verse 17, He says to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, that when your words come to pass we may honor you? Again, he doesn't realize who he's standing before. And so we see then, in verse 18, the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful. It is something that is incomprehensible. It is something that you cannot comprehend. It's meant to and should invoke a genuine humility. You see, brethren, we can know God, but we can't know him exhaustively. We cannot know God in his essence. We only know God as he reveals himself to us, as he reveals himself in the scriptures. And his name is is just too wonderful. We don't always need to know why God is doing what he is doing or the purposes for what he is doing, but we know that he does wonderful things. And so the wonderful things in view here certainly uh, uh, are connected with salvation, but also with the fact that this one who is barren is going to have a son. In fact, the same language is used in Psalm 139. You probably all know Psalm 139 off by heart. If you don't, you should, and I do as I say, not as I do, I don't know some of it off my heart, uh, but we see in verse 6, as he talks about the Lord who searches and knows his people, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain it, how is it that God hedges me behind and before, how is it that God goes before and is behind me, I, it's too wonderful, Well, then we talk about just a baby in general, in verse 14. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. It's a marvel that babies are formed in the womb, and it's a marvel that a baby is formed in the womb of a barren woman. It is too wonderful. And it's going to be from this child that salvation is going to come. And there is another child who is called what? wonderful. Isaiah chapter 9, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And what does that child do? He saves his people from their sins. Such knowledge is far too wonderful for us. Why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful. We don't know God's ways. We don't know God's might. We don't know God's power. We don't know why he's doing what he's doing. We can't comprehend those very things. We can know them as God works, as God has created in this world, but we cannot comprehend it. Your name is too wonderful. Now, all of this highlights something very special for the people of God, how God hears us the one whose name is too wonderful, the one who we cannot comprehend, he condescends. He hears. He appears. It's a God who bears with his people, a God who hears our prayers, even if we don't feel like he hears our prayers. But the reality is, brethren, he does hear our prayers. We can call upon him. We can ask. And everything we ask according to his will, he will answer. Davis says we will trivialize prayer whenever we forget the repeated miracle it involves. Isn't it a miracle? We pray to the high king of heaven and he hears us. The gracious condescension of the king's glory who stoops down to listen to our verbs and nouns, our adverbs and questions, our groans and tears. Prayer is such a blessing, brethren, but it is a miracle in the sense that the God of heaven and earth hears our prayers and he does so through Christ Jesus our Lord. God condescends, and He condescends by the fact that He hears us when we call upon Him, and He hears us when we speak to Him. So that's when Yahweh hears. Let's then look thoroughly and finally about when Yahweh appears, verses 19 through 25. When Yahweh appears, so we see them see Yahweh in this Theophany in verses 19 through 23. So they bring the grain offering, that that, that, um, tribute. They bring the burnt offering as they ascend. Notice he doesn't go to Shiloh, the place of the Lord, but the Lord is going to accept it anyway. And so we see this Theophany, verse 19. So they take the young goat with the grain offering, they offer it upon the rock to the Lord, and he did a wonderful thing. While Manoah and his wife looked on, it happened. As the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. He was not burned up by that altar. He was not burned up by that fire. He, was, he is the one who cannot be burned up. He accepts that, sap, that sacrifice that they bring. And when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground when the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the of the Lord. He does something wonderful while Manoah and Mrs. Manoah are watching. He ascends up into heaven. He ascends up in the cloud. He accepts that offering that they brought, that they have approached unto him, and he receives it. Israel's not been approaching unto God, have they? They've not been coming to him aright, and here we see them approach unto God, and God accepts, and God hears, and God appears, and God does so in a gracious way. And they knew that it was the Lord. They knew it was the Lord who was there. The old boys say it was the eternal son, uh, the angel of the Lord. This is the the eternal son. Uh, When the angel of the Lord appeared no more, they knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Not just any angel, but the angel of the Lord. In verse 22, Mr. Manoah responds in fear, says to his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. Now there is certainly we see in Exodus 33:20, no one shall see the face of God and live. That certainly could be in the background here as well. They've seen him in a theophanic way and he is fearful. He is fearful that he could die. There's certainly this holy fear that needs to be had, but we have to have faith with that fear. Fear and faith go hand in hand. We don't have a servile fear. We've talked about this. We don't fear. Yahweh in the sense that certainly we ought to fear him as the one who is God, the one who is mighty, but we don't fear him as Christians in the sense that uh, we are fearful that we cannot find refuge in him. The nations, surrounding nations in Joshua, they were fearful of Yahweh, but they did not find refuge in Yahweh. They were fearful of what he might do people in the end, when you know, the day of the Lord comes and the rocks are thrown and people are, fire, hellfire and brimstone, and people say, Rocks, please fall upon me. They're going to be fearful of him, but they're not going to find refuge in him. A filial faith finds refuge in Yahweh. And Mrs. Manoah recognizes something. Verse 23. But his wife said to him, she's always been the voice of reason, hasn't she? I mean, Manoah actually means resting place, or kind of goes with that word. And he's anything but. I mean, she's calm. She's collected. She's cool. He's running around like a chicken with his head cut off. And when we see, verse 23, she says, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands. I mean, Israel had been offering tons of those things and they were not accepted, but this one has been accepted. Nor would he have shown us all these things. Nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. He's accepted it. He has spoken he has condescended. He has been good. And he has been kind. He has accepted it. And thus in him there is mercy. In him all these things shall come to pass. Israel need to learn that as well. Israel need to understand that as well. Not just their sinfulness and their complacency. But also that Yahweh is a good God. Such as things as these. At this time. He would not have accepted us. If, or killed us. Uh, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted our burnt offering. And so, all um, the things that the angel says comes to pass, verse 24 and 25, when we start to see it come to pass, the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon, and we've seen the Spirit come upon the, uh, the various judges in, the, in other parts, of the book. And the Spirit Lord began to move upon him at Mahane Dan between Zorah and Eshtayal. We start to see his, see his mightiness. He starts to flex his muscles a little bit in Dan first. Then he'll go to the Philistines. But he starts doing it in Dan. Probably who knows what he's doing. Maybe he's fighting lions and bears. Who knows? But but he's flexing his muscles here. He begins to move upon him at Mahane Dan between Zorah and Eshtayal. And when he dies, that's exactly where he's going to be buried. He's going to be buried between Zorah and Eshtael the tomb of his father, Manoah. But for now, we see as a young boy, as a young lad who's growing, the Lord begins to move upon him. Now, a couple things to close upon with respect to Samson. One thing we'll highlight throughout this narrative is the fact that for all the times people get mad at him, we cannot forget that he's in Hebrews 11. We cannot forget that he is in that hall of faith. What of Samson? What of Barak? What of Jephthah? What of all these guys? I mean, all these guys we read about, we think Barak's a bit of a Nancy, even though I argued I don't think he is. We think that you know, Jephthah's got his problems, his rash vow, and then certainly Samson. He's got his problems and his issues as well, but they are still men of faith. They still operate and do what they're supposed to do. They defeat the enemies by faith. They are raised up by God to bring about deliverance for their people, including Samson. And Samson does point ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. All the judges are types of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the judges point ahead to the greater than, insert whatever judge you want. In this case, the greater than Samson. I do think there is some illusion in Matthew chapter 2. Certainly he shall save his people from their sins. I mean, that's exactly what the judges do. They save the people from the Philistines and from the oppressors. And certainly Jesus saves his people from their sins. But I do think in Matthew 2.23... There's the way the wording is used there. Commentators highlight several places that could be alluded to. Certainly Isaiah 11 with the stump, the sprout, that's a similar language to Nazar. But certainly the Nazarite vow could be in view here as well. Some commentators point that out. Because that's exactly what Jesus does. I mean, he has been set apart to do a specific thing devoted to God to save, to save his people. Not only that, I mean, we see it's the birth narrative in Matthew chapter 2. We see hopelessness. I mean, we see the massacre of the babies and the massacre of those in, Jeru- um, in Bethlehem. And then Jesus comes back out of Egypt and he comes and he uh, is settled in um, Nazareth to fulfill which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. That prophecy is never like that in the scriptures. You see, what Matthew is doing is he's taking prophecies in the Old Testament and amalgamating them to highlight, even though we don't see that, that that's exactly what is going on. That what Jesus is doing when he goes to Nazareth is fulfilling many prophecies to be the one who saves his people, and I do think including the one who would be the Nazarite pointing ahead, now he doesn't actually take the Nazarite vow, but certainly that language is in view here, and he is a greater than Samson, who comes and saves his people. I mean, spirit, hope, birth narrative, I mean, set apart, chosen, all those things are in view in Matthew chapter 2. To highlight the greater than Samson is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came to save his people from their Sins. That is the point of the book of Judges. Man is wicked, man is vile, man is awful. We are Israel in that narrative. But there is Christ who comes to save his people. We weren't seeking him. We weren't seeking God. We weren't looking for him. Yahweh was pleased to condescend. And the greatest way we see his condescension in the fact that the one who is the eternal son took on a human nature, has all our essential properties and common infirmities. It's like us in every way, yet without sin that we might commune with God. Thank the Lord for the one who is greater than Samson. Well, let us pray. Well Lord, our God, we are grateful for your patience and long-suffering with us as your redeemed people. We are thankful for the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus, how we are forgiven, how we are washed, and how all of our sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus. We are thankful that we were not seeking you, but you were pleased to predestine us according to your good pleasure. You are pleased to um, call us out of darkness and into marvelous light according uh, to your providence and according to the outworking of your decrees. And we're thankful that you did. We know that we were not seeking you. We did not love you, but you first loved us. And we're thankful that we see your love for us in the cross work of Christ. We're thankful that we see the benefits applied in the redemption and salvation and conversion in each and every one of us. Uh, at the appointed times in which we were saved. We know, O oh Lord, we are undeserving. We know, O oh Lord, we were complacent. We know, O oh Lord, we loved our sin. And we pray, uh, we're thankful that you saved us. We confess that sometimes we still love our sin. Sometimes we still love to do the things that we ought not to do. And then we are reminded that uh, we ought not to do those things. And we are reminded by your spirit and by your word. And that you teach us and show us that we ought not to do those things. And we cry out, O wretched men and women that we are. Thanks be to God for Christ Jesus. May we cry out in such times. May we cry out in such ways. May we always be aware. May we always seek to be conformed and reformed according to the word of God and what it says. May we praise you. May we call upon you. And may you answer according to your will. May we not neglect uh, this blessed means of growth and means of grace. May we not neglect the gatherings. May we not neglect the Lord's Supper. May we not neglect baptisms when they happen. May we love those things. And may we appreciate those things. And may we cling to those things. And Recognize that you are a God who is, so, who is so very good to us. Help us to fear you. Help us to worship you. Help us to honor you. Help us to find have joy in knowing that we know you. And help us also to rejoice with trembling, knowing that you are God. Help us to have that proper balance. And we know that you will help us because it is a good thing we ask according to your will. Give us strength. Give us aid as we go home. Give us good rest and good sleep tonight. Prepare our hearts for tomorrow and the various tasks that you have for us. Give us the strength that we need, and help us to know that when we are tired, when we are weary, we can call upon you and ask, and and you will help us. So help us now, help us tomorrow. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.